for instance, if you're sitting there in a lecture at any given time, only a small number of people are right in the sweet spot of where that lecture is. There are a certain number of people who already know a lot of the information. They're bored. Their brains are turning out. And then there are people who are behind. Maybe they don't have certain of the key bits of information that they need to understand what is going on. They're also tuning out too. Um, when you're doing things that are highly interactive and adaptive to the individual learner, your ability to speed up learning is so much faster. Are you new to working from home? Maybe you're figuring out how to manage a distributed team. Are you homeschooling your kids while trying to get something, anything else done? You've come to the right place. Work Life at Home talks with both newbies and experts as we explore the tools, tips, and techniques that will help you make the most of this new way of working. I'm Josh Freeman. Welcome home. My guest today is Adam Burns. So far, Adam's work is focused on education, entertainment, media, and technology. It's quite a story with a lot of ands in it. At Stanford University, Adam majored in economics, then went on to earn both a law degree and an MBA from UCLA. Initially, he worked as an attorney at Latham & Watkins before becoming executive vice president of business development and strategy and general counsel of Highwire. Apparently, he wasn't busy enough because he also was the CEO of Three Vision, a company that produced both feature films and video games. He produced the award-winning documentary feature, The Girl Next Door, and Fox Hunt, the first movie ever created from a video game. Next, he co-founded Neural ID. They do pattern recognition and big data analytics for a variety of Fortune 500 companies, including General Motors, Kroger, John Deere, National Instruments, and, good God, NASA, as well as some of the top pharmaceutical companies in the world. Then Adam started BrainRush, an educational software company he co-founded with Nolan Bushnell, who, for people who might not know his name, is a legend in the video game world. Bushnell started Atari and, yep, Chuck E. Cheese. BrainRush used video game technology to create educational software. And that led to his current post as managing director and head of ITG America a U.S.-based subsidiary of ITG Global, the largest educational software company in the Middle East. Adam runs ITG's operations in the U.S., Latin America, Asia, and Europe. Welcome to Work Life at Home, Adam. Hi, how are you? Nice to meet you. So let's start with the educational part of this. With the urgent and compelling shift of so much education to an online model, it seems that you guys are perfectly positioned to help schools make that transition. And I'm curious if that's an accurate assessment. Yeah, it's really an interesting thing, both on the kindergarten through 12 and higher ed. And we actually do uh, both. The whole idea of online learning platforms has been something that has been really a slow go. Um, and it's interesting. 
Um, this virus situation, I think, has speeded up something which is an absolute natural, which is there isn't any reason why a lot of learning cannot be done in an online manner. Um, our company happens to have a very robust online learning platform. And the critical thing is online learning is not just about Zoom. It's not just about the communication and collaboration software. It's about the ability to integrate all of the different pieces. And so um, that's one of the one of the advantages that that we have because we've been doing this for a very, very long time. You have to be able to take attendance. You have to be able to have structured curriculum with it. You have to be able to integrate testing, be able to do verification for testing. Um, there's so much more to doing an online learning platform, uh, but it's a natural. And the other thing about online learning is, is the ability to start using AI, the, the ability to use those sorts of things in terms of doing personalized learning and personalized learning plans, um, which in the longer run are going to show a lot of benefits. So I assume that this was set up initially for schools to be running in their conventional way, which is centralized, and students would be the, the focus of the online learning process. But now we've got teachers who are teaching from home. And I'm wondering, is this adaptable to that? Is that what, what challenges does that create for you? Absolutely. I mean, the platforms themselves have been set up. So not just the teachers, but there's much more to online learning, too. There's the whole administrative element. There's the, there is the whole element of testing, which, which involves a lot of other people other than just teachers and students, especially when you're talking about statewide testing, when you're talking about national, national curriculums. Uh, you're also talking about um, a lot of the administrative elements that actually go into all of this stuff. Um, things that are typically parts of what are called student in student information systems, as well as things that are part of the learning management systems. You know, one of the unique things that we do is that we, even though we're modular, um, have a fully integrated system. So we integrate all the parts of the student information system, the learning management system, assessment management system, communication and collaboration systems, etc., as well as even the enterprise ERP, enterprise resource planning, that's the finance, accounting, human resources. So the ability to do all of this um, from a remote point of view, being able to put it all in the cloud and do it is very, very important. So one of the things I know is that there's some question about whether online learning compares to in-person learning in terms of value. And I know there's a lot of conversation about colleges, for example, not being able to charge their full tuition if, you know, the kid isn't sitting in a lecture hall. And I'm wondering what the stats are, or how you've evaluated the difference between learning online and learning in a classroom. Well, um, you know, obviously there are differences and I, and I wouldn't say one is necessarily better than the other. I mean, I think in a perfect world, you're using a combination of both. Um, but I can say this, and this is just my own personal view. This is not a company view, but it's, it's been something I've been saying for a long, long time. Um, there's no reason on the higher ed level why colleges should be costing what they do. The reality <laughs> yeah. is we have made so many amazing, you know, um, technological, uh, 
progress as everything else. And why haven't they been used in the, in, in, in the education world? What's happening is these universities and colleges are spending tons of money on their athletic programs, uh, new buildings, administrators, on and on and on and on. Um, and there's really not a lot of need for it. There's no reason why the cost of a college education has gone up significantly more than the cost of inflation over the last 25 years. Um, and the fact of the matter is, I think the long-term aspect of this is that other than the real elite universities, the Stanfords, the Harvards, the Yales, the Princetons, um, I think a lot of these other universities are going to start going much more to a um, hybrid type of model where maybe, you know, you, you show up there a few times a year or you aren't there every, every single day. A lot of the stuff that you do can be done in an online manner. I mean, obviously you can't do um, biology labs and things like that. Um, but there's a lot that you can do from an online point of view. And there are certain advantages to it too, because mm -hmm. people can take their own pace. Um, you know, things can be more customized to what they're learning and not learning. Um, you know, how you listen to a lecture. I mean, there's no reason you shouldn't be able to get the top lectures in the world. And when you have online learning, you have the ability to actually do that. And one of the things that I, I heard you say somewhere along the line here, um, the idea that when students are in a lecture hall or they're in a classroom situation, listening to a teacher drone on about things, their brains shut off and they're not really paying any attention. And part of the challenge is to keep that level of engagement going, that level of interest going. And I think, you know, you were doing that with Brain Rush. And I'm wondering, is that continuing? What did you see as a result of doing all that? And is that still true? Yeah. You know, that's a, that is a really great point, which is that um, our brains typically shut off after about 10 15 minutes. Most of these lectures, you're not absorbing that much in the lecture in any case. And we, we know based on the brain research that the best learning is interactive. And to be honest with you, and this is especially true at the sort of kindergarten through 12 level too. Um, you know, there are, there are learning programs out there. There are learning things out there that are much more interactive and much more personalized to what you know and don't know. For instance, if you're sitting there in a, in a lecture at any given time, only a small number of people are right in the sweet spot of where that lecture is. There are a certain number of people who already know a lot of the information. They're bored. Their brains are turning out. And then there are people who are behind. Maybe they don't have certain of the key bits of information that they need to understand what is going on. They're also tuning out, too. Um, when you're doing things, and that was one of the things that Brain Rush was trying to do too, when you're doing things that are highly interactive and adaptive to the individual learner, the, um, your ability to speed up learning is so much faster. Yeah. And then there's the other, well, there's a couple of things. One is that there's a lot of online learning going on that uh, Seth Godin's been talking about where you, what you need is a sense of what he calls enrollment, which is this idea that you actually want to be there, you want to learn. And the other thing that he does is he has a lot of interaction between the students who are enrolled. And as a result, if you have an online learning class, that's just essentially a series of videos like uh, Udemy or Masterclass or something like that, 
you have a completion ratio or, or a, a graduation rate, I think, of like 5%. It's tiny, right. whatever it is. And he has a graduation rate of like 95% with his classes. And I'm wondering if you have any experience about that concept um, and whether that, you know, whether you've seen that happen and whether that affects what you're working on. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a very important point, which is you can't have online learning just be sitting there and listening to lectures. In fact, the whole the whole idea that you have communication and collaboration as a piece of it so that you're getting into small groups with other groups of students that you are, you are collaborating with other groups of students that there is interaction going on is absolutely critical. Um, and in, in any event, even without that, just simply passive listening to lectures is not what you want to be doing. You actually want to have, um, you want to have programs that are constantly interactive. Um, you want to have, um, a constant back and forth. And whether it's done in a synchronous or an asynchronous way, you have to have those sorts of things going on because simply passive listening is one of the worst ways of learning. The other thing is, and this is something that we learned at BrainRush too, is that mastery-based learning um, is a much more powerful method of learning. You know, the problem is if you're going and learning certain things and listening to lectures, and then you take a test and you get a C on the test and C is passing. So you go on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, especially when you have things that build on one another, like math, things like that. You're, you're going to get somebody who very soon becomes lost. Um, Mastery-based learning says, okay, we don't care that maybe the first time that you took this test, you didn't go, do well. We aren't going to give you a C and pass you. We're going to make you learn it again. We're going to figure out those specific areas that you're having problems with. And the test is able to actually do that. And we're going to give you what you need to know so that you can take it again. And you aren't going to pass until you've actually mastered it. And I think that's one of the most powerful concepts in learning that we could possibly um, get out there. But I agree with the other point too, which is that there's got to be interaction. And to be honest with you, interaction among the students too, not just student teacher is very important. Exactly. Yeah. That's what he talks about. It's the idea that the peers are interacting with you and the fact that they are in effect sort of co-teaching makes them learn much better. It, it, they become much clearer about their own contribution oh, yeah. and they have to work out how they think. You know, absolutely. You know, that is very true. If you're teaching somebody else something, that's the best way um, to learn, too, because um, in the teaching of somebody else, you reinforce all of the critical things about that subject, about what it is that you are learning. There's a there is a guy who um, recently came out with a book. I think it hit number one on the uh, how to bestsellers list named Jim Quick. Um, has a book out now called Limitless, which I strongly recommend. And um, he talks about many of those same things too, that when you are able to teach somebody something, just the process of teaching somebody something, you're actually learning too. And you're learning in a very powerful way. There's a guy named Richard Saul Werman, who is a designer who wrote a whole bunch of how-to books on various subjects, including things about what's going on in LA and New York, travel books, things about the Olympics. And what he used to say is 
the reason he would do a book is when he wanted to learn about something. And then he would just have gather all the information and he'd be able to give it to the world, you know, and in the process, he would become an expert in that particular subject. Seems like a great, right, great right. way to go. Oh, true. And, and it actually forces your mind, even if you know something, the process of teaching it forces your mind to organize itself and organize the subject um, in a much more powerful way. And so um, teaching something is one of the most powerful things that you can do. Yeah. So homeschooling, which is definitely a topic related to this podcast, uh, the, the parents are learning tremendously and they're learning from their kids, which is really fascinating. And then the process of the kids maybe teaching each other or explaining things to the parents who were taught math a different way or something like that, I would think would be a tremendous benefit. So there's not normally this level of interaction that you have with parents and, and the kids teaching each other as well. Yeah, no, I think that that is, that is definitely true. Interestingly, I have a good friend who has school-age kids um, who, before the whole virus thing happened, for totally other reasons, wasn't happy with the school system and took his kids out of school and joined one of these programs you know, to do the homeschooling for, for kids. And there are some formalized programs where there is a real curriculum. You know, you're actually learning stuff. And he was telling me... Um, just how much more his, his kids were learning. Um, you know, and so he was already kind of an expert at it when the whole virus thing happened. So when the virus thing happened for him, there was like literally zero change. Um, but he's been very happy with the whole homeschooling thing. I think I'll, but he was ready for it. He had done his research you know, it takes a lot of work from what I understand. I've never done it, but I understand it takes a lot of work and you got to be very organized about it. Well, if anybody is interested in hearing a little more about this episode two with Patrick Fredrickson gets into homeschooling quite a lot. And he's a guy who uh, was considering homeschooling and they were thinking about doing it next year. And then they got plunged right into it. And he has really had to learn quickly, but he's loved it. And the only thing is, as you said, it's just a tremendous amount of, of uh, commitment. So speaking of kids teaching each other and just sort of going down a rabbit hole for a second. Um, there is a, a man named Sugata Mitra who did some experiments called the hole in the wall experiments where they took a computer and they stuck it in a little like a niche in the side of a wall with absolutely no instruction about it or anything, including, you know, they just plugged it in, but there, there was no other information. And they did this in a little tiny village in India. And after a few weeks, the kids had figured out how to work it and not only how to work it, but how to program for it. And it was an amazing thing. These are, these are uneducated kids, barely any schooling. You know, they could read, but it wasn't, you know, there's no training in technology. And it's absolutely fascinating. And the kids essentially taught themselves how to do this. And I'm sure it was from this peer interaction. I'm just wondering if you know of that and if you, you're if you've seen that level of curiosity rise up in the educational world. Yeah, no, I actually have heard about that, um, read about that too. And that's really interesting. Um, you know, my own, my own feeling is that the education system, um, if we get more adaptive about certain types of education, we can learn a lot of the basic stuff very fast. And I think having some more time open for kids to do more free form kinds of things 
you know, for, for them to do things that they find fun. For instance, um, I'm on the board of a uh, charter high school in the LA area. Actually, it was the number one rated charter high school in the uh, state. And uh, the robotics program was really big there. And the kids love it. I mean, they literally, you have to pull them away from, you know, doing things like that because kids are curious and they are fun and they like to do things like that. And giving them, you know, more playtime is good because to be honest with you, if the other type of learning is done in a more adaptive format and not as bloody boring with lectures and everything, um, kids can learn the basics so much faster, giving them more time to do creative stuff where they're also learning in a huge way. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, another friend of mine who's a guy named Larry Martinek who started Mathnasium. Do you know the chain? It's a I do know the chain. Yes, very familiar with it. So, so his whole thing goes back to what you were talking about earlier about kids getting kind of uh, passed up because they haven't learned the basics and then they get lost later on. And his teaching method really has to do with helping them understand where they are in the process and then and then gradually taking them through making sure they really understand the concepts that they need to understand to go to the next level. And it sounds like that's the same general idea as, as what you were talking about. And yeah, no, I mean, that's the whole mastery based learning concept. And there's a lot less pressure on it too, because kids aren't scared of getting D's and F's and things like that. It's listen, it's all part of learning. Making mistakes is all part of learning. In fact, that's one of the things that that brain rush did is you would start on a subject that you knew nothing about, and you would literally constantly be tested. And guess what? You would start off terribly. You'd be getting almost everything wrong, but it didn't matter because the constant interaction and the feedback, you would be learning so that after 15, 20, 30 minutes, whatever the concept was, you would know it. And again, mastery-based learning, I think, is a much more powerful method of learning than the way we do it now. Everybody's scared about, oh, do I, did I get an A? Did I get a B? Blah, blah, blah. My life is ruined. Exactly. I totally agree with that. And it sounds like when you just described what you were describing, that sounds exactly like learning a video game. You haven't the slightest idea what's going on when you first pick it up. It's just like, what's this? And you have to click your way through it. Exactly. That actually was one of of Nolan's inspirations when he started Brain Rush way back when was the same thing. He goes, why don't we just teach kids the same way? We do video games. He said, it's just, just amazing. You ask some young kid, um, you know, who all the different Pokemon are and they'll know. It. I mean, they will have memorized, you know, hundreds or thousands of Pokemon. Well, why can't you do that with the periodic table? Why can't you do that with, you know, a thousand other things? Um, if you make it fun, if you make it interactive, um, et cetera, you know, you can get kids to do almost anything. Exactly. And adults by the way. <laughs> and adults too. That's yeah. right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, that's great. Um, all right. Let's change gears for a second and talk about working from home. So you were commuting to Silicon Valley. Uh, I think you said you were leaving on Mondays and coming back usually Thursday nights. You had an office up there. You had a team up there, I assume. Yeah. And at this point, everybody's working from home and you have decided, I believe, that you don't need an office anymore. Is that right? Yeah. At least for right now, um, 
our office lease is up the end of May and we're not going to be renewing the office lease as it was anyway. Um, we were constantly interacting with our Middle Eastern teams anyway. Um, and my most important critical guy isn't even in Silicon Valley. He's in Utah. Um, and so it just turned into a situation where we kind of realized we didn't really need that um, Silicon Valley office. And I was going up almost every week. Um, most weeks that I wasn't doing international travel, because I was doing, you know, moderate amount of travel to India, a little bit to the Middle East. Um, I was going to Philippines a lot. Um, but those weeks that I wasn't doing international travel, most weeks I was going up to the Bay Area. Um, and we just decided that at least for right now, it isn't really needed that we're getting a lot of work done remotely. Um, interestingly, we had been using Zoom for literally years. What is so funny is now everybody talks about Zoom and knows Zoom and everything else. Well, I had some friends that worked at Zoom. In fact, I've met the CEO of Zoom numerous times. I've been in their offices for lunch numerous times. You know, two and a half, three years ago, I was hanging out there well before they, they were a public company. Um, so, it's, so it's actually funny, but the ability to use Zoom or we actually, we actually have been using um, Skype for business a lot on our, on our internal calls or, or we use our internal system. But the bottom line is being able to do remote work um, is relatively easy. And we've been very productive doing that. And so for the time being, we have decided to not keep our offices and work remotely. Well, I'm assuming you directly manage some teams or a team. Yeah. How are you doing that? What are you, what, what software are you using? What processes are you using? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, we have our own um, CRM system that our company built called Software Master. Um, and we end up using that. Um, so we have, you know, we use that. Um, obviously, I'm on the phone a lot with them. Um, I'm on Skype for business a lot with them. Um, and it seems to work fine. I mean, the reality of it is, um, even when we were in offices, I was still, because my main guy is out in Utah anyway. Actually, I have, I have two critical guys out there. Um, we're out in Utah anyway. And then the main teams that I work with in terms of the technology are all back in Amman, Jordan. So I was on with them anyway at crazy times. And then, you know, we're, we're doing work now in India which also, again, is at crazy hours and times, 12 and a half hour time difference there, 10 hour time difference to Jordan. Um, I was just on last night with Singapore, 15 hour time difference, um, was doing a lot in the Philippines, 15 hour time difference. So it is kind of crazy anyway. How do you track all the time differences? Yeah, that's a good question. I have it all on my phone. So I mean, I have, I have all the different time zones I work with on my phone. So it's pretty easy. Plus, you know, you just get used to it. So the one that's a, a, a little bit nutty is India, because it's not like on an even on, on, on an even hour. It's 12 and a half hours difference. Ah, OK, good to know. Haven't had to interface with India yet. No. So you are doing a lot of international outreach, yes. obviously, yes. if you're going to be developing this stuff. Yeah. How are you how are you doing that when you can't travel? Um, you know, it's interesting. Um, that's a great question. And, you know, doing it a lot more with email and phone calls and everything. And surprisingly, it has been working really well. We've actually, 
we actually closed one of our huge deals without physically traveling. Um, I mean, we had been over there in the past and hadn't gotten it closed. And then we closed it from here. Now, for the future, you know, when we're opening up other new markets, there is something to physically being there. But honestly, I think there's a lot that you can do without physically traveling. And so, um, and from my own personal health point of view, um, the last time I had gone to India, I'd actually gotten really sick. Um, so it's actually nice that I don't have to travel quite as much. And I'm, I imagine there's lots of people who feel that way, who are just a bit relieved to not be going places, or certainly right now, yeah. but even in general, uh, traveling a lot gets old. And it I does. mean, to those of us who don't do it often, it's, you know, exciting and joyful yeah. and fascinating and all of that. Those are those of us who travel for vacations, but for work. It's like, uh, God, I have to go to India again or whatever. It also just messes up sleep and working out and, oh, all, yeah. and all the other things. I mean, I've been really amazed, um, even without being able to go to the gym. You know, I have an exercise bike at home. Uh, I've got TheraBands. You know, I, I, I can't do the weights, but um, I'm probably in the best physical shape I've ever been in. I mean, I'm working out every single day. Um, for usually an hour and a half to two hours, just because I've got extra time. I don't have commutes I have to do. And that also helps keep you sane during all this. Exactly. I don't know right. how isolated you are, but are you, I mean, this is now delving into personal stuff, but are yeah. do you have a partner? Are you married? Are you, you know, do you have no, a family? So, so plus and the minus of the whole thing is I am single. Um, do not have any partners. Do not, do not have any kids. Um, I live in a, you know, nice, large house with great views and a pool and all that stuff. But it is a little bit lonely in the sense that there's nobody else there. On the other hand, from a productivity point of view, um, I don't have kids. I don't have a uh, partner. So I've been highly productive. Um, and that's one of the other reasons why I'm probably working out so much, somewhat out of pure boredom. Because, uh, <laughs> yeah, but, but it actually does help help keep me sane. And as you know, you know, you get endorphins when you work out and everything else. And I've been actually relatively happy during this time, considering everything going on. Um, and considering the fact that I'm pretty isolated and really haven't seen many people at all. Um, but, uh, you know, overall, from that point of view, everything has been okay. Um, tell me about the meetings that you have. And I'm kind of curious about the uh, the tone of them in that you're dealing with a lot of international cultures. You're dealing with people who I imagine tend to be more formal than Americans do. And maybe it's loosening up. I don't know, but I'm wondering what are the meetings like, uh, among like, if you can characterize them, sort of the ones you have with your, you know, your guy in Utah and local people, and then versus the Jordanians versus, the, maybe the Filipinos or the Indians or whoever else you're contacting? Within my company, even among the people in the Middle East, um, everybody's pretty, pretty casual. So when we have our video meetings, it isn't like people are super dressing up or things like that. Um, however, I am always careful when I'm on um, with anybody from a foreign culture or even my U.S. meetings when I'm actually having an important meeting whether it's Skype for Business or Zoom, um, uh, I uh, try and have on like a 
regular shirt and, you know, button down shirt and look like I'm in a sort of business type of setting. When I'm doing internal stuff, people are pretty casual. So it's not that bad. I wanted to ask you about languages and you're dealing with the, basically the entire world all over the place. I'm assuming the common language is English because that's always the language of business. But do you find that, first of all, do you speak other languages? And secondly, do you find that people are using other languages than English? One of the great things and great advantages that we have, honestly, is that everybody speaks English. So English is the international language of business. We are very fortunate um, about that. Um, I have to say, um, I'm not business fluent in any other language. I did take French back in school and um, I'm much better at reading French than I am speaking French. I can get around a little bit in French, but I'm not by any stretch fluent. Um, and then on my own, many, many years ago, I learned Russian. Um, and again, I'm sort of conversationally at a very basic level to like get around fluent in Russian but I'm not really fluent. Like I couldn't do business or even come close to doing business um, in Russian, but isn't even like we do anything with uh, Russia now. So it, it actually doesn't matter. Most of, you know, most of the other places that we are talking about India, the great thing about India, everybody speaks English. Um, um, so India is great. Um, also been, been like talking to people in China. I don't speak Mandarin. I tried once to, to learn Mandarin. It was too bloody hard. Um, and it was too hard because the tones, um, I could learn the grammar, the grammar in Mandarin is pretty easy. Um, it's the tones that are really super hard, but our system, what is great about our system being an international company is that our system is capable of doing any language out there. So we already do something like 20 some odd languages on there. Um, and you know, we're going into India now and we're adding some, um, some regional specific Indian languages. Um, and it's relatively easy to add new languages as well as new sets of learning standards too. That's amazing. Cause that's, those are complicated things. My, uh, my wife is a professional translator and I can imagine how difficult it would be to, to port an educational system into another language and keeping in mind all the cultural differences and, uh, you know, and then the, the, expectations of the actual progress of the education. Now, that's fascinating. Tell me more. How do you do that? Well, from the actual technical point of view, I can't get into the basics of the programming of it. But what I can say is that the system was set up in a way that actually allowed for um, use of multiple languages, obviously, because, you know, English wasn't the first language that we did. Arabic was. Um, oh, of course. So we, we actually had to do this in such a way that, that importing other languages was um, critical. The other thing is, too, it isn't just the importing of other languages. It's the importing of any kind of content. So we conform to international standards on doing that. And then the most important thing of all, even, or just as important, is the ability to put any set of learning standards in and then to tie learning objects to those learning standards and be able to do that simultaneously. So for instance, in the US, we have what's called Common Core. But even among Common Core, the different states are slightly different in how they do Common Core. Then in Europe and in other parts around the world, you have International Baccalaureate. Um, 
In China, you have a whole different set of learning standards there. In you know, India, there are different sets of learning standards there. And so the ability to take different sets of learning standards and have the underlying system be able to work not only with the different languages, but with the different sets of learning standards is a really important thing. That's, that's an incredible thing to be able to do. And I can see if you developed it in, in Arabic first, that's a big jump to get that into English. And then once you've done that, you've, you, it seems like you've done 80% of what it takes to do a localization. And then from there, you can do it more easily. Although I would expect something that's uh, ideogram based like Chinese would be considerably harder, but yeah, still amazing. Yeah. So great. That's great. Well, if people are interested, where can they reach you online? Well, um, they can, they can reach me on um, LinkedIn, just my name on uh, LinkedIn, which is Adam Burns, B-E-R-N-S. So it's Burns with an E. Um, I should be the only uh, Adam Burns on there or certainly uh, LinkedIn. I know it's slash Adam Burns. And then on Facebook, um, I am Burns.Adam. So those are probably the two easiest ways to reach me. I'm not on Twitter very often. So even though I do have a Twitter, I almost never use it. Great. Thank you. That's fantastic. Okay. Perfect. I appreciate the time very much. Excellent. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for now. If you're new to working from home, you might want to check out worklifeathome.com where you'll find articles, show notes, and best of all, a community where you can ask questions and get some answers from people who've been doing this a while. We'd love to see you there. And I would be thrilled to hear what you think and find out who else you'd like to hear from on the show. You can email me at josh at worklifeathome.com. If you're enjoying Work Life at Home, please do let your friends and coworkers know so they can subscribe. Thank you for listening. We'll be back soon.